This is the Gould Standard, episode 48, Cecile McLaurin-Salvant, Jamming Beyond Jazz, part 1. Hello everybody, I'm Brian Levine and welcome to the Gould Standard, a podcast brought to you by the Glenn Gould Foundation, just celebrating our 40th anniversary year. And we're here once again bringing you conversations with some of the most remarkable people from all across the world of the arts. But first, while you're stopping by under our flirtatiously flickering neon piano sign, please take a moment to press like, share, and subscribe. Kindly leave your comments, pose your questions, and be part of our community of friends and supporters. While you're at it, be sure to check out our past episodes featuring a cavalcade of crackerjack creative spirits. And as they say in the infomercials, but wait, there's more. We invite you to pay us a visit at our website, glengould.ca. When you're there, if you're seized with an irresistible impulse to click the donate button and support the charitable work of the Glengould Foundation, well, we'd be proud and honored to have you as one of our legion of supporters. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by an artist described by Wynton Marcellus as the singer like this who comes along only once in a generation or two. Her first jazz teacher's impressions after hearing her for the first time were as follows. She had everything, the right time, sense of rhythm, the right intonation, and incredible Sarah Vaughan type of voice. Not bad for someone in her teens who had basically never sung jazz before. Three-time Grammy Award winner Cecile McLaurin-Salvant is certainly all of those things, but what I find most compelling about her is her musical adventurousness, her willingness to voyage across centuries and make the music of different times, cultures, and mindscapes uniquely her own. We were thrilled to meet Cecile for the first time in 2019 when she was chosen by the laureate of the 12th Glenn Gould Prize, Jesse Norman, to receive the Glenn Gould Protégé Prize. And we were subsequently honored to have her join us for the 2020 Glenn Gould Prize Jury, which selected Alanis Obamsuan, the Indigenous filmmaker, as our 13th laureate. Cecile's questing spirit is fully on display in her newest album, Melusina, and its predecessor, Ghost Song. And I'm looking forward to talking about those with her. Cecile, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to see you again. Well, why don't we actually go back to um, where we first met? Jesse Norman described you as a unique voice supported by an intelligence and a full-fledged musicality which lights up every note she sings. Were you surprised when you learned that Jesse had chosen you as her protege prize winner? Yes, I was I was very surprised. Um, I was surprised that she even had ever heard me sing. Uh, that so that goes to show you. Well, she uh, she called me up and she said, "I've been thinking and thinking and thinking." And there's a young artist who I think really is destined for greatness. Those were his exact words. I just can't believe the way she shapes a song and the way she uses her voice so flexibly. And I think that what she does is really destined to be among the greats of jazz. And then she said, are you surprised that I chose a jazz singer? And I said, no, not at all. I think it was great. Anyway, it was it was really amazing to have you and the brilliant pianist Sullivan Fortner join us to perform at the gala for Jesse at the, the Four Seasons Center in Toronto. But it was especially poignant when you and Jesse sang somewhere at the end of the show. 
that ended up being her last public performance. Uh, did, did you have any thoughts about that? I was extremely, extremely nervous uh, to be in the room with her, to be singing with her. I think I actually cried after we rehearsed uh, because I was so overwhelmed and scared. And honestly, I felt like a fraud. I felt like I didn't deserve to be there. It was really, it really brought up a lot in me that was scary that night before we performed together. And then when we did uh, do the performance at, at uh, you know, at the, at the show, at the ceremony, uh, it was one of the most thrilling moments of my life musically. And it sort of gave me a push to actually delve further into voice and into music and, 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 um, and continue to push myself. It was, it was such an incredible experience. And she was the nicest, sweetest person to both Sullivan, the pianist and myself. Uh, she was such, such a, a warm, welcoming, sweet presence. Um, and I don't know, it just really, it felt, uh, there's so many different emotions I can think of in that moment. And Certainly part of it is is also because as a young girl, I always wanted to be a classical singer. I always wanted to be an opera singer. And Jesse Norman was a giant of that, you know, form. Um, and so it was, it was really, really a, it's a moment I'll never forget. Never forget. Well, I, I just want to share with you <clears throat> that when we do the prize, we don't necessarily require our, our award winners to perform, but sometimes they do. So I, I thought that, you know, Jesse had so many fans and we had the Canadian Opera Company Orchestra at a beautiful hall. It would be amazing if she did. So I asked her very, very gently, do you think you'd like to do something? Maybe one number at the end of the show, because I think that your fans would really love it. And she said, let me think about it. And then she said, I will perform if I can do a duet with Cecile. Oh my God. So that's, that literally was her condition for, for, for doing that performance. And I, it's, it's interesting while we're, before we sort of step away from the world of opera, I noticed that your own music publishing company is Violette and Mimi publishing, um, which I assume is Traviata and Bohem um, as the inspiration. Uh -huh. Uh, or am it's I not. just? No, it's, it's so not? funny. It's so funny that you say that because now I hear that and I go, "Oh yes, it actually sounds." No, Violette is the name of my niece, and when I started the publishing company, she was a little toddler, and she had a cat named Moustique that uh -huh. she nicknamed Mimi, and she would always call the cat Mimi, Mimi. So I thought, oh, my publishing company will be Violette and Mimi because it's you know my niece and her little cat. And um, and I just recently started to, re to realize that both Traviata and Bohème are two operas that uh, no no operas have ever made me cry as much as as <laughs> so so somehow maybe it was all there right. I don't know but right. it's it's a coincidence. Well, um, let me just take this moment to say in the. In the um, interest of mind expansion, everyone here who is listening because they love Cecile and they're jazz fans and would never be caught dead in an opera house, go to the opera. All of you 
opera fans, you get yourselves to a jazz concert, especially if Cecile is in town, so that you can actually discover these new worlds because Cecile moves between them so gracefully. Thank you. Um, one thing I especially appreciated at the the the, uh, the prize for Jesse Norman was that I, I got to meet your folks. Um, and uh, and uh, I think they, they drove. Uh, are they still living in Florida? They are. And actually, it was just my mom who came. It was your mom. Okay. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, yeah. And no, no, no. She took a she took a plane to come up uh, uh, and, and spend the time. And she was she was really great. I mean, it was really great to have her there and. and well, share that moment with her, right? And I and I get the sense that um, that your folks were a huge culturally formative influence on you. Um, can you tell me a little bit about about your your home life as as, as a kid and and um, the kind of ex eclectic cultural experiences that shaped your early consciousness? Uh, music was a really big part of every day. Uh, in a way that it's not any, as much anymore. I mean, I don't listen to as much music now as I did as a kid. Uh, it was always on in the house. Always there was some kind of music that was either in the background, we weren't paying attention to it, or we'd sometimes focus in on it, but there was, there was never a silent moment. I mean, music was really the sound of, of, of that house. And great singers. Um, I, I know about Jesse Norman only because my mom used to listen to Jesse Norman. Um, and she listened to all of these great singers from all around the world. I mean, every continent was uh, represented folk music, classical music from all around the world. So, so that was really uh, film soundtracks, things like that. And, you know, what people call world music, which mm -hmm. is one of the worst genre titles because it's like what does that even mean yeah but uh we really really listened to so so much uh and that was really lucky and then the second thing that i'll say that was um a big part of my childhood was that there was a big focus on you know being academically driven and and um being being good in school and being curious and 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 trying to educate oneself inside and outside of school um, and so there was a big focus on, on that, on, on, uh, sort of learning, always learning, always, always being curious about the world, always trying to, to get more informed, to, to read more. All of that was, was a big part of, uh, my childhood, I would say. And, and that's also partly my sister. I mean, I remember one summer, my sister, uh, made me learn Hamlet soliloquy like that. And I was eight and she said, you need to learn Hamlet soliloquy. I want you to, you know, I want you to know this. You need to know this. And, um, or maybe I was 10. It mm. was a young age right, to right, learn right. that, yes. to memorize that. But so that was kind of the environment. Art was always at the forefront. My sister and my mom both painted and did all kinds of um, textile arts between crochet and knitting and they, and mother uh, took me to a bobbin lace making class in Normandy uh, during the winter. And we would go to pottery class and there was dance class. Just all of the arts were, um, were being played with, 
listened to, consumed, and also participated in in that house. Well, that is remarkable, especially because your folks aren't professional artists. This was just their their love and their their passion. Um, but there's also another factor, um, which I think is is pretty obvious. I've always had the sense that being a francophone is very central. Uh, and a big influence on your musical sensibility. Uh, but you grew up in Florida, and that's a part of the world that I associate with having Spanish as the dom dominant second language, despite the fact that there's a Haitian community. Um, did that make you feel a little bit sort of set apart um, in the sense that you were in a, a very culturally French environment? No, because all of my friends were... Uh children of immigrants either from france or from haiti so i was surrounded by people who spoke french at home or who spoke french as a second language or as, as a first language um so no it felt it felt right at like it felt normal um and and then you know it's the, and i went to a french school an international school so uh half my classes were in french i, I took math in french and history in french and I was with the same group of students from elementary school basically until the end of high school. And we were all in the French program and with some who had French parents and Haitian parents. And little by little, we started making friends with the other kids in the magnet program that I was in. So people in the Spanish program and in the German program. But it was always um, people who were taking language uh, classes. I mean, that, those were really the people that I was around all throughout uh, my primary schooling. Well, then, uh, were your first words mommy or a maman? I have no idea. <laughs> Probably maman. I, I spoke French. I spoke French un up until I went to pre-K. I uh -huh. only spoke French. It's wonderful. And in terms of, of your early music-making experience, when did you begin singing? When did you first realize that you had something special vocally? Um, I don't know when I began singing. I'm sure very young, very, very young. Um, I started uh, singing in a choir, I think, when I was seven or eight. But before that, I was probably singing around the house. And I was, um, it's more that I was told that I had a good voice rather than me finding something out about my voice for myself. I just enjoyed singing. Uh, and little by little, I think I realized that I could, I, I could have some control over the way that I sang, over the pitch, things like that. But it wasn't so much, um, it wasn't so much me saying, oh, I'm singer, I can sing. It was more, I would, you know, my mom would invite friends over for, for dinner and they'd say, oh, Cecile, can you sing them a song? Or, you know, people would tell me rather than me saying that this was <laughs> my identity, you know. So if you were invited in those days to sing a song to you know, a group of your folks' friends, would that have been a jazz song, or would it have been something else, most no. likely? No, it would either have been, depending on the age, it would have been something that I was singing with the choir, maybe, or it would have been a song from a musical. I remember I used to often sing this song from this Canadian musical called Stamania. 
and uh, it's like this apocalyptic robot. <laughs> Robots are like the main characters. And there's this musical uh, that one of the characters sings called Stone Le Monde est Stone. And I, and, I, and I loved it because it begins with like my, my head is exploding. I only <laughs> want to sleep and, and lie down and, and, and let myself die. <laughs> that's uh, so dramatic. That's, uh, that's uh, an interesting lyric for what an eight or 10 year old kid to be seen <laughs> maybe a 10 12 year old i loved i love that kind of dramatic stuff and then when i started taking classical voice lessons opera lessons then my favorite stuff was like those really dramatic arias like um uh what was the aria that i sang it might have been a rossini aria that was very very dramatic yeah so something bel canto, which actually kind of draws a line, which we'll talk about a little bit about your your move into Baroque music. But let, let's let's talk about your your going to France. If my arithmetic is right, that was in two thousand seven. You would have been about eighteen uh, when you went off to study uh, law. You want to study law? Uh, you wanted to to be a master of Napoleonic of the Napoleonic Code. I did not. Um, so I had no idea what I wanted to do after high school. Um, and, and I didn't even think about it much. It was just sort of going with the flow. And my mom had found this, um, this political science prep school in the southeast of France in a city called Aix-en-Provence. And the political science prep school offered as part of their curriculum, we could take an option of doing a first year of a bachelor's in law. And I also was going to the conservatory for classical voice lessons for um, at the same time. And then I started doing jazz lessons at the conservatory. And then I started not going to my political science prep school, but the law, uh, the law classes, we would they would send us all of the lessons at the beginning of the year. So I thought, oh, well, technically I could just study and try to like pass the test by the end of, you know, the semester. And so I sort of just did that. And and um, but it it was not so much something that I was passionate about or that I even really wanted to do. It just was something to do. Right. <laughs> and um and I will say that the interesting thing that I uh, take away from those studies and those law studies was that it's a way of reading language that is very interesting because you're always looking for meanings behind meanings behind meanings. You're always looking for the way people are playing with words and manipulating words to their own ends which is something that I'm very interested in as a singer. And then you're also, I mean, there's, there's something for me that I, that I loved, which was just the history of it. I loved the history. I loved the diamond, you know, the French dynasties. I loved Roman law. That really got me excited. Um, and, you know, are, you know, arguing something, arguing a point using language. Um, and the little Latin forays, you know, learning these these uh, these quotes in Latin about about the law, 
um, that was really fun. But ultimately, it wasn't. I mean, I think I was more interested in language than in law, uh, and in history than in law. And if I had, if I was able to go back and start over, I think that's probably what I would have studied. You were doing music, and I guess the the law part. Mm, fell away at, at a certain point, but it, it did give you the excuse to be studying in a beautiful place like X. Yeah. I mean, it was, I, I did it for three years, yeah. you know, I, 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 I did it. I did the three years of the bachelors. Um, but I was, yeah, I was starting to do classical voice and jazz. I was starting to play the piano a little bit in the jazz class. And then I was also, uh, starting to delve into Baroque singing. Mm -hmm. And so it just, you know, and little by little I started singing professionally. And so things kind of cleared away right, over right. the years. Well, and, and that part interests me. And I, we chat a little about this the first time we met that I sort of understand with your, your gifts and, you know, the, the, the whole, you know, creative approach that you take to music making, the, appeal of jazz but i'm really curious about about what drew you to baroque music you know what was it about ramo and handel and vivaldi and bach that that spoke to you particularly you know what i think even with jazz or with classical music it's never about the genre itself and i think this is probably the case for most people it starts with either an artist one particular artist that moves you or it starts with a song i think with baroque singing it started with a song that i was singing in my classical voice lesson and my teacher said oh you know there's a baroque program here and it was like one of these baroque arias i don't remember what it was and she said you know there's an actual early music program and there's early instruments and i said early instruments what the heck is that like is there a harpsichord and so once a month in this music school, we had like a weekend of early music with choral music, with uh, dance, Baroque dance classes with a harpsichord, with um, figured bass classes where you learn how to, you know, basically read figured bass with a harpsichord. And there was all of this, there's just this entire world of music. There were, we were reading treatises about how to sing and how to do diminutions and it just, it responded to so much that I was interested in. It was such a wide uh, approach to the music that I felt, quite honestly, was lacking in my classical voice lessons. And even to, some, to an extent in my jazz lessons, I never had something that holistic where you're dancing, you're playing an instrument, you're singing in a choir, you're reading about, you know, like, you're, you're basically being a musicologist as well. Right. Um, and, and you're discovering all of these instruments that I had never even heard of, that I had never even seen, that sound so beautiful. I also really appreciated the fact that I didn't have to sing as loudly as I had to in my classical voice lesson, right. that, um, that the irregularities, you know, Baroque is, is a celebration of irregularities. So the irregularities, even within the voice itself were celebrated there was improvisation that yes. was encouraged. Um, and there was beautiful, beautiful, beautiful repertoire. A uh, repertoire that I loved. I mean, I got to sing Charpentier's Medea in uh, class. Oh, uh, wow. And she's, you know, she's considering killing her children. 
And as I've told you earlier, I love a good dramatic thing where someone's just descending into madness and rage. Right. I just love, I think it's just so fun and cathartic to play these characters. Um, and so it was, it was really, really fun. And it felt also, I'll say this also, that it felt also kind of like a secret society. It wasn't, but it sort of felt like in the conservatory, this is something for the people in the know. This is our, our little group that does this. And um, and I just loved it so, so much. And I loved my teacher. I had a wonderful voice teacher whose name was Monique Zanetti. Is Monique Zanetti. She's an incredible singer. Um, and she taught me a lot about diction, about interpretation. Um, so it was really a lot of fun. And it felt, yeah, it felt a little bit like this underground <laughs> yes. culture, this subculture in the school. And, and I loved it. Oh, that's that's really, really cool to hear because, you know, for so I mean, I, I can tell you that I spent a lot of years making a lot of records of early music ensembles. And uh, I think that um, some of those uh, those instruments are am among the most amazingly cool sounds ever uh, until synthesizers came along where you could reproduce almost anything. And I wonder why people don't write music today for crumb horns because, you know, they're so neat. Yeah. Um, so there's a challenge, by the way. You know, you come up with, with a number in an album that has a crumb horn solo, and I will <laughs> and I will be the first person to buy that record, I promise. <laughs> but anyway, the uh, or for that matter, a racket or or you know, whatever. Um, the um, uh, one of my 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 greatest experiences doing this podcast was doing I think about 90 minutes with Jordi Saval. And of course he's, you know, oh, wow. one of the great masters Incredible. of this. Yeah. But anyway, so, but that actually leads me to an interesting point. And that is um, when you started singing jazz and, and I want to know how you sort of made that first step, how you, who found you and brought you into it or whether you found it and brought yourself in, but also did you discover any relationship between the kind of, of improvisation, ornamentation that happens in Baroque music and in jazz. They feel very different, but I, I kind of think there must be some relationship. Well, uh, I'll say that I, uh, I think jazz, I owe jazz to my mom because she not only listened to it my entire childhood, and it was such a big part of what we listened to, but also when I moved to France, uh, she is the one who suggested that I study jazz uh, and that I uh, meet the jazz teacher in the conservatory and just sing a song for him. Um, and what I'll say about the improvisation elements, I realized recently that I think one way that I improvise as a, as a singer is that I sort of do a da capo with ornamentation and I play with phrasing. And this is something that is fully in the Baroque um, singing tradition. I don't scat a lot or at all, um, but I do a da capo like on nearly every song that I sing. And I improvise in a way that is to me similar to the way that Baroque singers used to improvise. And not with the same vocabulary, of course, but that similar thing of like keeping the lyrics, playing with the phrasing, playing with the ornamentation, um, all of that is a part of it. So I'm sure that 
that, you know, to me, that's, that's a link. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess at this point, the, the name Jean-Francois Francois Bonnel um, enters into the picture. He, was he your, your jazz teacher in, in France? He was my jazz teacher. Yeah. He was not only my jazz teacher, but also uh, the founder of the first band that I ever was in. He, he uh, pulled together a band. He um, organized my first gig ever. Uh, he helped me organize my first recording session and my first album. Uh, so he was a really, really big part of, of my life in my early 20s and, and in making music. Well, clearly, I mean, I quoted him at this, uh, in the introduction. Clearly, he saw something that really excited him because I imagine that he didn't go around forming ensembles and making recordings with any of his other students. It probably was something that was an immense vote of confidence. Did you find that to be something that filled you with self-confidence and made you feel like there was something, you know, worth pursuing? Did you start to think about jazz as a career at that point? I mean, did, did you have an inkling that this might be your direction? Not really. It took time. No, not really. I, uh, I think I was flattered, but I also was just so consumed with self-doubt. And I was also, you know, I was 19, I was 18, 19. I was like, not thinking, I wasn't ambitious like that, thinking about what my career was going to be. I was just being a young adult uh, and and just following sort of what was happening. And I was more interested in the friends that I was making and in, you know, my classes and all of that than like a career. Right. And I think part of that is also because I was in France. I was in this small town in France. So it wasn't even, I wasn't even thinking that far. I, it wasn't a concern of mine at all. Right. But the, the album that you made with him, it's a pretty cool album for a debut. Uh, and as Thank I you. recall, I don't, I don't have the, the track listing in front of me, but as I recall, there are a lot of, you know, really major standards in, in, in that album. It was a, a pretty traditional um, exploration from a repertoire standpoint. Am I, am I remembering that correctly? There were some standards. There were songs like Exactly Like You. Um, but there were also songs that were lesser known. And, and I, I have to say, already at that time, I was interested in uncovering songs that were lesser known. So there was, there was a song called Frosty Morning Blues, which is a song that Bessie Smith sings that no one's ever recorded. And there might have been others like that that were sort of rarities. So I was already kind of dipping my toe into that role as like a curator of repertoire. Well, that, that is really interesting that, you know, in terms of selecting the program, was that selection entirely left up to you or did Jean-Francois? Yes. Yeah, he, he basically... Entirely. Yeah, he... he uh, I think that was part of also of his teaching style. It was, it was, he, he was just basically like, it's up to you what you do. I right. mean, even as a teacher in our classes, we would come to see him in class and he'd say, what do you, what do you have for me? Right. What are you going to play for me? He never gave us assignments. And so very early on, I was used to being independent in my choices as a, as a musician and as, as a singer and like, this is what I want to sing. Right. Um, that was encouraged. Well, that is that is very cool. And and what a what a gift compared to, for example, 
being discovered by a record label and having an A and R person basically sit down and say, "Okay, we want you to put this and this and this and this on the album," and yes. then you know after that, you know, you can or the manager or right. being discovered by a manager who says, "This is what you should do. This is what's going to sound good. Uh, this is what people will like." You know, all of that, all of those concerns were not in my mind at all. Right. Um, and that is such such a lucky thing because it can be really dangerous to go the other route because. You know, then what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But here you are, you're you're a neophyte and you've got an album. And it's like just a couple, three years later, and you win the Thelonious Monk International Jazz Competition. Tell, tell us a little bit about that experience. I mean, um, it had to have been a pretty overwhelming thing to suddenly find yourself in a major international competition like that, um, basically being well a complete unknown um uh, still you know uh, i hope you don't don't take this the wrong way but still kind of a kid and you're i don't take it the yeah way and all. and you're and you walk away with the with the prize um so what what was that like uh i really didn't expect anything to come of it and i really didn't expect to win at all because i had just lost a competition a month before in france and it was like a s s sort of small unknown competition uh known in france but not around the world the way the monk competition was uh so it felt like the stakes were higher it felt like there was just no way i would make it through even to the finals so I was extremely nervous, but I also was realistic. And I thought, if I'm losing in France, I'm not going to win in America in this international thing. Right. Uh, and that was a strength because um, I think I just came in kind of defeated. <laughs> and there was a part of me that was like, I'll just sing these songs that I like. And, uh, and that's it. And I'll try to have fun as much as I can. Right. It was the first time I met Diane Reeves and Dee Dee Bridgewater and Kurt Elling. And I met Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter. And uh, I met my manager there. Right. And I met uh, Jackie Terrison there that I ended up collaborating with. And Rodney Whitaker. And, and so, so it was a lot, a lot of what my life ended up being for the next five years came from that three-day uh competition i mean and a recording contract just a lot of and a recording well not really no. so i won a recording contract with the competition but i didn't um i didn't go with the label that uh the recording contract was with because they were saying that i needed to run my song choices by them and that ah. i needed to uh and, and another label was interested and so i just went with the other label um probably much to the dismay to the dismay of the competition but <laughs> um it was just one of those moments where it was like i i need to i need to be somewhere that i can continue doing what i want to do and they were already also suggesting a band and it was just I see a little bit more input, artistic input than I was willing to. And not that the suggestions were bad. 
Well, well, bravo to you for that. I mean, you know, I don't know whether having had the experience of making an album where you chose all the material kind of got you sort of a set of expectations that you wanted to continue, but... Um, I think so. Yeah. But now... You said that you had a lot of self-doubt. Now, winning this competition, you know, being feted by all these these musical greats, you know, getting a manager, this must have just filled you with self-confidence. You must have suddenly had this, you know, huge ambition. You were out there, you know, full of piss and vinegar, wanting to go out and conquer the world, right? No, no. <laughs> you knew I was going to say no. <laughs> I, uh, well, I was wondering about about that. I mean, it must have felt no. like like a bit of a like a bit of a this does not compute moment. If you if you really had a lot of self, it was a this does not compute moment. And also, I think for a few days after, I was like, oh my gosh, everything is going to change. My whole life is going to change, and I'm going to like I don't know. I was just like I'm going to blow up. And then I went back to France, and then nothing happened. And all the people that had said, oh, we should play together, or oh, let's, you know, let's stay in touch, or whatever it was, like, the only person that really followed up was my manager, and everything else seemed to feel like it was just back to normal. I went back to my little conservatory in France, um, and I went back to my little town, and it didn't feel like anything really was changing. Uh-huh. So, so no. I mean, if anything, it gave me a boost of like, let's see what this music thing does. We'll see. But it never was, oh, okay, I've made it. It's happening. Everything is, co- is coming together. No. So when did you start to feel the change? Was it when you started to get gigs? Um... It was very progressive. I moved to the U.S. I went to the new school in New York for a semester. Uh, I started recording my my second album with a band. I, I had like one or two gigs, and I started working with an agent. It's all it all happened little by little by little by little. Right over the course of a year, I would say. Well, that was probably good for you, so that you could actually begin to make the transition without too much of a sense of shock. Um, Yes. Now, when did you begin writing your own songs? Um, I don't remember. Probably around that time. Um, I started writing my own songs, I remember, because of Abby Lincoln, because I heard Abby Lincoln's songs, and she made it sound easier than it was. (laughs) (laughs) And she also made it sound like it was important to write your own song, to write your own story, to tell your... And I had always had, before that, I had always had a little bit of disdain for the songwriting process. Not disdain, that's the wrong word. But I thought, why should I have to write songs? I can just interpret songs. I don't need to write. Why does everybody, you know, why are there these things that we need to do as artists? Why can't we just be right 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 (laughs) um but she really i I heard a song that she wrote called holy earth and it was so beautiful and i thought oh i want to try to write something and um and and little by little i started writing more and more you you've uh you've said my compositions are like pages ripped from a diary that i don't really want to share 
but that I almost feel a need to share. Um, it's a way for me to get things out that I can't get out in life, um, you know, in real conversation, regular conversations with people. So that suggests that you're really going deep and, and, and exposing, you know, the inner you in a very, very personal way. Do you feel that that's kind of a, a commitment that you make as a songwriter to, you know, be that brutally honest with what's going on inside you? It is, but it's funny because it's sometimes it's things that are going on inside me at that moment. And so when I sing the songs five, ten years later, there's a certain distance with that. And also I look at them in a different way. And so um, it always feels most vulnerable when I've just written a song. I right. think that's really when it feels horrific to share. <laughs> <laughs> it's It's still sort of ripped out of you you know, beating and pulsating and, and, uh, yes. and with the rawness of life, um, on a, uh, in terms of a song that's, um, a little bit less, um, let's say, uh, I don't know, traumatic. Uh, I was watching a video of you performing doo doo, uh, in, uh, 2017 at the festival de Marciac with, uh, the Winton Marsalis quintet. And I was really struck by your total engagement and joy, but also, when it comes to the instrumental solos in one of your own songs, and the player starts jamming in all sorts of directions that you may never have imagined, that must be an amazing feeling for you as the composer. Like, have you ever had this feeling, this is what, let's say, Cole Porter or Ellington or Basie might have felt like, you know, and maybe I'm writing the next chapter in the Great American Songbook? I haven't felt that when I'm singing even if I'm singing with a band and they're soloing. I have felt that uh, there's, a, there's a young singer that's incredible in New York. Her name is Georgia Hears. And she has sung some of my songs. And um, when I hear her sing my song, and I'm just in the audience, or I'm just listening to a recording, uh, or another singer called Venetia Gould, she's... she's she sent me like a voice memo of her singing my song and, and, you know, to think that someone's memorized the lyrics that I wrote and is, is singing it with their own spin on it. Um, that to me is a, is a extremely precious moment. And it's so, so beautiful. Like I just, I get so emotional and excited when I hear that. Um, but it's never when I'm singing it or when I'm on stage or when I've come, you know, when I've asked someone to say it's more these moments when someone says, hey, I sang your song at, at my, my show or we've been playing it. You know, that's really when I feel right. um, great sense of, I don't know, there's something extremely, extremely touching about that. That's great. Well, you remind me of something that Leonard Cohen said when, when we gave him the Glenn Gould Prize and we presented a concert with about... 12 really wonderful artists um, singing his material. And when he made his acceptance speech, he said, for the artists who are going to be performing tonight, if you have even the slightest trepidation about singing my own material before me, just be aware that I am going to curl up into an ecstatic ball of joy and gratitude throughout. And whatever you do, I'm just happy that you found something in there that you liked. Exactly. The Glenn Gould Foundation is a registered Canadian charity and we rely on the support of arts lovers like you to keep bringing inspiring stories to life. 
please consider giving by visiting our website, glengould.ca, and follow us across social media at the Glenn Gould Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of The Gould Standard. Merci